Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. My name is Sue Regan and I'm joined today by Bob Cotton, who is a visiting fellow here at the Crawford School of Public Policy and a former diplomat. Hi, Bob. Hi. Great to be with you this afternoon. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. Find out more about it at crawford.anu.edu.au. A few weeks back, it was National Science Week in Australia, and to mark the occasion, our podcast for that week was called Putting Science and Policy on the Same Wavelength. On that episode, we brought together a physicist, a psychologist, an engineer, and a climate scientist to discuss how scientists can make themselves heard by policymakers. Well, today we're turning the tables. We're going to hear from two senior figures in Australia's policymaking process about what it's like to be at the pointy end of policy creation and formulation and receiving input, wanted and unwanted, from scientists. Joining us today is former Chief Scientist of Australia, Ian Chubb. Ian has had a long and distinguished career as a neuroscientist and as an academic. He served as Vice-Chancellor of both Flinders University and the Australian National University and has been made a Companion of the Order of Australia. He served as Australia's Chief Scientist from 2011 to 2016 and was conspicuous in raising the public profile of science in the media. Hello, Ian, and welcome this afternoon. Thank you, Bob. Also joining us is Timus Werner Gibbings. Timus has worked for over a decade in the public service. He has been a senior policy officer at the Department of the Environment and a parliamentary staffer for both ministers and backbenchers in government and in opposition. Timus is currently chief of staff and media advisor to Lisa Singh, Senator for Tasmania. Hello to you, Timus, and welcome. Good afternoon. It's good to be here. I should add that today's episode was inspired by a tweet uh, from the New Zealand Association of Scientists in response to our science podcast from a few weeks ago. It is also the topic for their upcoming conference next month, and we'll leave a link to that so that you can find out more uh, in the show notes. So many thanks to them for the suggestion for this episode. And likewise, if you're listening to Policy Forum Pod and have any suggestions for what we might cover on the podcast, do drop us a line and we'll see if we can get an episode on that topic. By the same token, we love to hear your feedback on this or any of our pods. You can reach us on Twitter, where we are, Apps Policy Forum. On Facebook, we, where we are, Asia Pacific Policy Society. Or just flick us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Uh, looking forward to hearing everyone's thoughts on our podcast, but for now, let's uh, go to our guests. Welcome, Ian and Tamus. Thank you. I wanted to start today by asking you about the relationship between scientists and policymakers and the policy process. Um, do you think scientists are seen as partners or really are they seen as irritants getting in the way of politicians doing the job that they're elected to do? 
Ian, I'll go to you first. Um, well, it's probably a bit of both. Uh, it would depend a lot on uh, how the scientist explains what they are trying to say. And uh, I guess that uh, too many of them speak to their peer group and not to the audience that they're directing their comments towards. So if you speak to a politician who's basically a lawyer who has dropped science at year 10, uh, has little thought uh, for it uh, because they've thought little about it uh, over all that period, then you have to tailor the way you present your data without without dumbing down your data, but you've got to present it in a particular way that's um, comprehensible to a smart person but who is not in your particular field. And there are some who do that very well. There are also some politicians who, who um, you know, do understand science, the method, the processes. They understand data. Um, they have some elementary understanding at the very least of statistics. And so you talk to them a little differently from the way that you might, you know, put somebody in the first category. But as I've said recently, science is one of those areas where so many, too many politicians are proud to say they're ignorant and happy to demonstrate it uh, frequently. And uh, we've got to do something about it. We've got to acknowledge that that's part of the, one of the issues that we have to grapple with as scientists. Thomas, what's your perspective? Well, without wanting to come in and say I'd echo all of um, Professor Chubb's words, he's absolutely right. Um, it's also a bit about picking your politician if you're a scientist because uh, Julius Caesar said a quote, it, everyone will believe what, they, what suits them, something like. And that's absolutely right. So if a scientist comes up and is talking to, for instance, a right-wing uh, senator who knows specifically what audience that they need to be talking to and the information that the scientist provides, be it facts or uh, early hypotheses, doesn't suit them and doesn't suit the people who they think voted them in for the reasons, then you're going to be very hard to get um, much traction. But the problem being, that's exactly the sort of people that you need to talk to to start getting them thinking about what are possibilities, what are impacts. Because if you just talk to, I mean, on, on environment issues, if you just went and talked to green senators, you're already they're already agreeing with them, right? And there's so there's no benefit. So despite the slog it is incumbent upon people with information that needs to be shared, particularly with politicians, to talk to the people as much as possible who don't agree. And then it's and then as Ian said, it's a matter of um, nuancing the way you present the information. And it may not always work, but time and pressure. Um, it hasn't always worked since the Enlightenment, but science keeps pushing forward with ideas and thoughts and they keep getting justified and improved. Um, and policy does come around, but... Can yeah. I just pick up the word slog? Because it is, uh, and you do have to be patient and you do have to be persistent. And I've seen too many people have a meeting with a minister or a senior bureaucrat and they walk out saying how wonderful a meeting it was while that individual is already looking up the papers for the next meeting. And uh, and if the scientist, in this case we're talking about scientists, if they don't go back often enough to and 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 grow and evolve the process as they go to to persuade, um, then they have little success. And to have one to leave the office of a minister who seems to be happy and have one meeting and you think that's enough is completely wrong. You have to put in the effort, you've got to put in the energy, you've got to go back, you've got to re-nuance the information given the reaction that you might have had. 
And um, it's all about understanding your audience, but it's also about being persistent and knowing that your audience has got a million other things to think about. You know, constituents ringing them up about car parking in the office from whatever, you know, water, cutting trees, all sorts of things. And, uh, and, and they're important to them. So you have to make sure that you find the time and that you get them to find the time to talk to them often enough about the issue to be persuade, to be persuasive. As, and trying to understand the politician's audience as well. You yeah. know, what are the issues that will resonate with the politician that will convince them that it's worthwhile picking up and then putting on their email blasts that then, then they get back, uh, you can call them stakeholders or um, constituents. People will say, um, Senator, that's fabulous and we really need you doing more of this. Or, so it's, there's a whole lot of audiences that people need to be um, people need to think about. And Ian, when you were chief scientist, how how did you uh, deal with these challenges? You know, and and what do chief scientists actually do? Well, some people say nothing. Um, they, uh, they uh, I was telling somebody the other day that over five years I gave an average of a hundred speeches a year, and I know the answer because I had it for Senate estimates when people said to me, "What do you do?" And um, they. Uh, so it, it's, but it, but it's primarily, a, a, I think, um, a, an advocacy role, both within the political system, within the, amongst officials, and with the community at large. So, you spend a lot of time talking to people, learning a lot from that, of course. I mean, the the lessons that I learned uh, over those five years were um, immensely valuable to me, uh, but also helped me shape how I got the messages across to ministers uh, up to and including the Prime Minister. And of course, I had four Prime Ministers in my five years. So I had to, um, I'm glad I didn't have to buy a suit each time the Prime Minister changed. But uh, but but you do have to change the way you address them. And, um, and you know, Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard was different from Kevin Rudd, who was different from Tony Abbott, who was different from Malcolm Turnbull. And they each had different set of interests. They each had uh, a, a, a different um, uh, sort of political context within which to operate. So, so you had to be had to be careful, but you had to be persistent. So I developed a three word mantra. It was the um, back when I, uh, well, almost when I began in around 2013. Three word mantras were the go in Australia, and mine was passion, patience, and persistence. You need to be passionate. You need to be patient, but you've got to be persistent if you want to get them to hear you recognising that they've got multiple audiences um, and you have to uh, shape your comments and your advice really to, to to make it attractive to them to to begin to take it further. And was there a particular topic or issue where you felt you had to be uh, extremely persistent and that really tried, tested your, your ability? Well, I walked into the middle of a spat about climate change, of course, and uh, which is finished now. Which is yeah, it's all gone. <laughs> I mean, we know our energy policy, yeah. um, we know our climate change policy, but what we do know is that if the Australian government really was listening to the Australian people, where eighty-four percent of us say that we should invest more in renewables, we would be doing that. So it's a good example of how politics intrudes into the decision-making process in a way that you might not anticipate. So many of us say, according to polling, so let's assume the polls are correct, so many of us say that um, that we want more investment in renewables. 60-odd percent of us say that we want to phase out coal by 2030, carbon neutral by 2030 or carbon-free by 2030. 
um, you know, nearly 60%, I think it's middle 50s, say that a 45% emission reduction target is about right or too low um, by 2030. So if they were really listening to us, we would see it. But that illustrates the political context then that they have to operate within. And there'll be people in this, uh, or, or political representatives, who who will go home to their constituency and the majority of people will say, all of that's nonsense. But they govern for Australia. They govern for the whole of us, all of us. Uh, they are of us. They're supposed to represent us. And um, And I don't mean populism. I don't mean populist you know, responding to every focus group or poll. I'm talking about leadership uh, and we don't have enough leadership in my view um, across the board um, because sometimes they're going to have to do things that some of us might not like and they ought to explain why they have to do it. They should be saying to us, this is why it's important and persuade us that it's the right thing to do even though there will be a noisy opposition sometimes. And did you Always. feel as, Always, yeah, as uh, chief scientist that you've stuck your chin out a lot on these issues? Uh, well, if I, um, I mean, I got, uh, I mean, by comparison with what um, your average politician would get, I'm sure of a small number of uh, nasty emails and all the rest of it. Um, I, uh, I think uh, I, I made a mistake actually because I underestimated or I, or I didn't estimate the audience accurately enough. So in the first speech I ever gave as chief scientist, I said the science and climate change is settled and I should not have said it because um, I really, uh, I, I mean, as a scientist, I know that all you do is increase the probability that something's exactly correct. Right. Nothing's ever yeah, settled. Nothing's which... ever settled. And, and I did it and, and it was sloppy and, um, and it took me a little while to live that down. And people still use that expression. Um, but it's not settled in the sense that uh, science will always lead you to a high level of probability. Um, and that means that some people will always say, well, since it isn't settled, we don't have to do anything because it might all be wrong. They say things like, you know, science isn't something that you determine by consensus. Well, but when a consensus of scientists working independently all come to a very similar conclusion, you're entitled to say that so many of them say this, it is highly probable that, and we should therefore do something about it. So I don't think I got that right, um, and uh, and I got a bit of a uh, uh, shellacking from some people who like to write you 200 pages uh, of um, fine, detailed rebuttal of anything you say. When, what did Mr. Uh, Roberts say when he was doing that? Mr. Roberts, well, Mr. Roberts did send me a, um, um, a pile of papers from time to time, yes. Well, yes, one nation, Malcolm Roberts, yeah. <laughs> he, asked, to, he asked Professor Chubb a lot of questions. Uh, quite a few, and, and to persuade me that uh, that he was uh, right um, pretty well uniquely. Thomas, you're currently a Chief of Staff. Um, what's your role in making sure that uh, the science gets through to politi- polit- uh, politicians? Well, I mean, at the moment, I'm chief of staff to a senator who is really, really interested in the issue, so there, or in issues. So there is, I don't have any problems getting information uh, in front of her and having a discussion about it because we've got, she's got the interest and the opportunity and the desire to bring those subjects up. Um, and even when I was working for Tony Burke when he was Minister for the Environment, I was at the very last bit of the 2013 um, Gillard Rudd government and we were working on the marine parks, uh, which in when they got legislated were the biggest uh, marine 
park legislation that had been done throughout the world, which was based on five years of science and half a million consultations with the public. And even that didn't work in the end. So, I mean, and Professor Chubb talked about the the difficulty of, of nothing's ever settled. And that is, it's not a problem. It's a fact of the scientific method that there's no, you don't have certainty, right? Um, gravity, the science of gravity isn't settled at the very small and the very big, so let alone climate change. But the fact is, most people think that climate change is happening and they've got very good reasons to base that assumption on. And most many are proposing, not solutions anymore, but mitigation efforts that could be undertaken to uh, limit the impact of what we're going to be facing. And if the politician is interested in that, they will be prepared to take it up. But then the other problem, well, not another problem, but another issue is one politician in a party may not be able to make a difference because in the Labor Party, it votes collectively. So you might have 35 people saying this is a real issue and 40 people saying it is an issue, but politically it's not probably necessary. So we're not going to take it on at the moment or the other way around. And as soon as any media gets an indication that people aren't dis- people aren't um, completely aligned, then that's an argument for create. That's a conflict story. And media likes conflict stories because that's what's interesting every, and that's why people watch it. So the scientific method in and of itself, because it can't provide guarantees and because politicians want guarantees, there is not a disconnect, but it's really a really, really, well, that's why the time and pressure, you need to keep making the argument and keep providing more information. If you have a politician who's happy to listen to it and really interested, then you're fine. Um, and if you have a politician who's not interested or doesn't talk to the, talk to people who want that information, then they're not going to waste their time. Um, and so you'll have to find other ways of getting it through. And um, Professor Chubb was, was really, really effective, I thought, of being in the media or getting his comments heard. Of course, that brought back huge blowback because right? the more time that you're out there talking about theories or thoughts or reasons why this is a problem and why things need to be done or why this, this could be looked at, vested interests will push back immediately and hard because it doesn't suit them. Ian, I was going to ask, uh, just build on both what you've said already about – uh, drill down a bit on just uh, why politicians are receptive to what you were saying or were as chief scientists or why they were not. And I think that kind of heads in the direction of some of the policy parameters in their minds, their ideological views, if you will, and just how you need to deal with that. Um, well, I think that uh, – so during my time as chief scientist, I, I, I lose count. Um, I think there were seven ministers for science, um, maybe six. I did once – um, say at a public event that um, uh, half of them were named Christopher. So if your name was Christopher and you had no interest in science, you had a 50% chance of being Australia's next science minister. So that got me a standing ovation from the audience. But except for the politicians present who were who were um, wondering whether I meant them. But, they, uh, but, but I, I mean, during that time, um, the first ever, Kim Carr, was had made a 15-year run at being a science minister, basically. So when uh, when he um, took on the portfolio, he he knew his audience within the scientific community. He'd been around there, he'd been learning, he'd been developing policy positions. He'd talked to a lot of people, including me, before I was chief scientist and vice-chancellor at ANU and afterwards. And, um, and so he hit the ground pretty well running. But when you talk to him... Um, either 
as a scientist, as a vice-chancellor, or later on as a chief scientist, then then what you'd find with Kim was that he knew something about what you were talking about and he was receptive to the idea. He had a political framework within which to operate and so, you know, the... the um, Perfect advice that he always got from people like me was sometimes not implemented in full, but um, but I understand that. But you were talking to somebody receptive. A couple of others lasted about six months, um, and uh, we met each other, but there was no real interest because they had their eye on either the coming election or the next portfolio. And I, and I said in a speech last week, actually, at the press club, that the problem that you have is that a minister has never has to show any interest in the portfolio they've been given. Mm. Um, and a lot of them, of course, accept the portfolio because it's a ministry, not because they want to be the minister of. Um, and and when you know that that's what you're dealing with, so you take a car who 15 years, you learned a lot, you deal one way when you get somebody who knows that they've really got their eye on the next job. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's n- not not hidden. Um, the, uh, and, but I had a couple, Ian McFarland, for example, who was not himself a, uh, a scientist, but was very receptive to talking about ideas and directions. But what we had to persuade them all, whether they were interested or, or not so interested, or indeed the prime ministers through the Commonwealth Science Council and so on, uh, was, it was a question of risk, risk assessment, risk management, mm. consequences of risk. And, and um, you know, is, is it better to do something about um, CO2 emissions, for example, and take the risk that uh, they will be, as some people would like to say, um, you know, of no consequence at all? Plant food, I think they still describe it as in some quarters. Um, and uh, so we've got to get that balance right again. And, and sometimes you could do that. I mean, you could say, look, there is a, there's a great risk in doing nothing here. Um, the risk, in my view, is greater doing nothing than doing something, but you've got to understand both sides. And I just ask you here, how helpful is it to have a Minister for Science and a Ministry of Science uh, in your role as Chief Scientist? Do they all come together well? Did you get to have, have enough resources to do what you needed to do as Chief Scientist? As Chief Scientist? Well, you could always have more resources. Of I mean, I'm also an academic, so I know that no resource is enough. Um, and as a Vice-Chancellor, I can absolutely assure you you never get enough resources to do anything so or everything. So um, so I think, uh, I think you know, I, 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 the way that the role plays in Australia, yes. I mean, my counterpart in, the, in Britain had something like I... Uh, uh, well over 100 staff. Um, and they, you? How many did you have as uh, chief 15, son? yeah. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and they were good and committed people. They changed a bit because, of course, if you were a, a career public servant, you wouldn't want to spend your time, all of your time, uh, too much of your time, in, in, a, in, a, in an office where as soon as the chief goes and another one comes in, it's a different ballgame. So... So, um, but we had a we had a good office, a very supportive office, and we gave good advice. Um, and a lot of it was taken, but not not always in full. What I'd like to ask you both now is to sort of drill down a bit on what does science actually look like to the policymaker on the on the other end from the scientist sort of delivering it. What's in your mind? What does what does science really mean in this context? Is it a kind of a briefing note from a department? Is it some very good academic article? Is it uh, chief of staff's brief to the senator? Uh, just what I just want a bit more of a sense of how you get that sort of science into the debate. Well, I mean, in five years out of government, it's been a long time since I've seen a briefing note 
from a department, um, apart from the odd one that gets shared with us, politically neutral from ministers or uh, science in opposition, but in, I think, a party that is more receptive to scientific arguments uh, than other parties in the parliament, looks like interviews with actual scientists, if they have an opportunity to come on, or interviews with non-government organisations who base a lot of their work and research on uh, what scientists are doing at universities, or emails straight to the EO out of nowhere um, saying something like, I would really like to get an opportunity to discuss this. Is this a possibility? Because I've done X and Y, and then it becomes a matter of time and timing and issues relevance to to what the, my senator is working on at the moment. That's what it looks like in opposition. In government, it is much more significant, as I mentioned before, sort of the 500,000 submissions about the marine parks and the five years of work that was done mapping every single park about what would be the impacts of uh, this amount of non-fishing in an area, what, what could we expect, where has it happened before, who are we using to make those decisions. Um, it's huge amounts of reading and briefing and discernment and trying to get that information into a minister in a 24-hour period is really, really difficult, uh, let alone when they've got you know the optics, as they're called. But, it's a, but let alone they've got to make sure that they're looking good doing their job as as an environment minister, they're working for their constituents, they're working within the party, they're working within the government, and they've got to make these really serious decisions with significant impacts on uh, fishermen and on uh, families who fish and on the environment and on the coral reef. It, science science in government is can be overwhelming, but it is also uh, inexhaustible, right? You, you can find the information that you need, whereas from opposition, you don't have the ability to go out and get it a lot of the time, you can't just ask for a report on what is the climate in Perth and what's it like to be in 2030. But you can talk to people who have done that work independently. And, and I would just add to it that, um, I mean, all of that's right, that, that the role of the chief scientist is uh, uh, a sort of synthesiser of a lot of that. So it's not that I would necessarily be asked to comment on a very, very specific, finely detailed thing. That did happen, of course. Um, but, you know, if they get a number of submissions about vaccination um, and there would be some pro and some anti and they turn around and say, well, you know, what's the story in this, Ian? What's the theme? You know, is there something that we absolutely need to know? So you'd pull it together and you'd give a sort of advice about uh, about the data, about the statistics, about some of the references that might have been made to articles that you know were debunked twenty five years ago, but are still being cited and things like that. So, so it, it, the advice of a chief scientist, going back to your original question, Bob, is 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 often at that level. Sometimes in the detail, but often at that level, because the the guys in the minister's office have got to cope with all of these you know, the big numbers of things when there's pushback on something like marine parks or barrier reef or climate or whatever it might be. And and so it's a, I think it's a very significant role in that respect, that it, that it pulls together things and represents them in a way that is um, much more readily digestible. And to, reinforces. Um, and reinforces, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, that that's a very particular skill, being able to synthesise in that way and um, I mean, I'd suggest probably involves value judgments. Um, would you agree with that? Uh, no, you'd have to try not to because, I mean, I don't, uh, 
I don't want to um, walk into a discussion when you've got 50 different comments, say, on vaccination uh, from one end of the extreme to the other um, and, uh, and walk in saying, well, I believe they're all wrong or I believe that only this lot is right. I think you have to evaluate rather than um, inject a value judgment into it. But you know you're human. Um, but 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 as a scientist, you, you know all of my training was was I was told always look at the data, look at the data, look at the data. You know, what's it telling you? How do you interpret it? Uh, you learn much as much from data that is telling you that you were wrong, your hypothesis was wrong, as you do from ones that confirm, and you push your hypothesis out a bit. But look at the data, and I think that you've just got to make sure that you remember that even in emotional times, on emotional topics, where people feel very emotional, um, you look at the data and you come back and you say, well, this is the evidence, mate. It's looking like this. Um, these are the reasons why, um, and I can give you good arguments for why you should adopt the position you adopt, but there will always be people who say rubbish. Can you give a, an example of where you feel it worked perhaps as it should so that the science and evidence influenced the policy? Oh. <laughs> well, can I add that? Um, you might want to comment a bit on a point that Thomas raised about vested interests coming back at you once you're getting into you know contentious topics such as climate change. It shouldn't be contentious. It shouldn't be. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, think, I think a good bit of advice that is... Um, uh, has been essentially ignored was when the Climate Change Authority came up with an unbelievably professional. I was a member of it, but I didn't do the work. There was a whole bunch of extremely talented officials who did a brilliant piece of work, in my view, and got ignored because the the emissions target was too high. And I think it's ridiculous. It's easier to find examples where it's been ignored than it is. Uh, I mean, the, the the debate on the radio this morning about using environmental water uh, that's held back in the Murray-Darling system to provide for irrigators in time of drought. Now, the science would tell you that that would be very damaging. The emotion would tell you it's very, very damaging for the farming communities that depend on water and it's not raining. So, But what I'd like to see in Australia is a sensible debate about these things. I mean, when, when the Labor Party put up a tax imputation, moving away from science, there's no science in this bit, um, a tax imputation, um, the then Treasurer who came out and said it was theft, robbery, stealing. Well, I didn't think that was an intellectually based argument against the policy that was being put forward. And I expect more from these people, especially from the really senior ones. Um, that person happens to be Prime Minister now, so it'll be interesting to see how that, that discussion goes on. So what I want to do is I want to put the evidence on the table and I want to have a debate about it rather than the overuse of silly and irrelevant words like theft, stealing and robbery. And Thomas, your example from earlier about marine parks, that sounded like a, an evidence-based, evidence-informed policy process. As far as I could tell, yeah, it was... Um, unbelievably evidence-based and, and uh, an unbelievably evidence-based process did not please everyone and something like that can't. The first national park, I'm assuming in Royal National Sydney, not everyone was happy about it, but it was the start of something that was amazing. What, what do you think, um, was it about the perhaps the context or the individuals or that allowed that to happen? Uh, a huge amount of enthusiasm and uh, deep 
long-standing commitment to the issue from the minister. I mean, he was the driving and remains actually because he's still fighting the fight about marine parks um, from from Tony Burke. He, it, I mean, it's got to come from the politician because they're the people who say what work needs to be done. They then make the arguments about why that work needs to be done. So, I mean, it, ideas can be lobbed up, um, but it has to come from the minister. And his commitment to the concept and the possibilities of a really extensive, rigorously maintained marine park system and what that can do in Australia's uh, littoral seas and oceans is is huge and consistent and that's why he still fights for it. And, and he had a really good evidence base. Yeah. And it took a long time. So, so one of the things that we've tended to do a little too often, I think, is to come in late to try to persuade the community generally, and scientists haven't been good at talking to the community until it's too late. And so, you know, you've got to do this, otherwise it will be bad for you. Whereas I think with the marine parks, um, that was known to be happening over five years. There was a lot of community exchange as well, uh, but a good, solid scientific base. So a minister can go out there and know that the pushback is more to do with emotion than it is to do with fact, and you can come back at that. Um, when it's a little more rubbery, then it's a lot more difficult. So, so, and that's a good example of where that gives support, even though there is strong pushback. You know, I'd like to shift it a bit and take you to sort of a, a big picture, reflective sort of view on all of this. How has it changed in your lifetime, in your career, science? The things like the changing nature of politics, um, the emergence of social media, where the policymakers actually have a regard and respect for science anymore today than they did in previous times, and new challenges facing policymakers. Well, I remember during the Brexit campaign in Britain, a senior minister at the time said, uh, and I quote pretty well, accurately, I think, this country's had enough of experts. And I think that we're in a similar position, perhaps not quite as extreme. But on the other hand, the British respect for science is remarkable, the investment they're making right now. Uh, in in science and in research and so on is is remarkable. So we could learn a lot from it. But one of the things that we have to learn is that that there are people who believe that the country's had enough of experts. So the experts then have an obligation to make their expertise accessible to people who are not themselves experts. And I think that's been one of the big changes because, um, you know, politicians get all this stuff on social media and so on. A lot of it anonymous, so you've got the real heroes out there who will invent some name like, you know, Tree Branch Fred, or, and uh, and um, you don't know who they are, and so they can be as horrible as they like. And, uh, and, and, and that changes the context within which we all operate. But at the end of the day, good scientists, and they're overwhelmingly, I believe, uh, people trying to do the right thing, will follow their data, analyse their data, make sure their data is as good as they can make it uh, and they've got to make that as accessible as they can make it to people who will use it for policy. Is it used enough? Um, my, my personal view would be no, but that's probably uh, a value judgment going back to what I always deny that I have. But but um, but it probably <laughs> probably is a value judgment that, that, that there is a lot of evidence that we have that could, it, could be a much firmer base for policy than is probably used. Let me tempt you on a few more value judgments here, and particularly over your career. What is the best way to fund science in this country? Is it government funding, you know, CSIRO, Bureau of Meteorology, the Cooperative Research Centres, 
or is it should it be done in cooperation with the private sector? Is that a better way to go, or, or is there some new way of doing it? Yeah. Well, I don't know that there's a new way of doing it right now that's available. I mean, ultimately, um, you know, somebody might invent some you know huge philanthropic trust, such as happens in the US, where. Uh, you know, people put in a lot of money, but usually for particular purposes. And the one advantage of the government is that I think the government, and, and so I support government funding. I mean, I believe that there is a public interest in doing a lot of this work. Public interest and, in making uh, mistakes. And yeah, all yeah. Of, so that's, and, and, and the government is responsible for, for essentially supporting and providing for the public interest, in my view. I'm, I know there are people who don't agree. But so the government gives money to the ARC, it gives money to CSIRO, it can have an influence on where some of that's spent. So, you know, in my day, the government um, would uh, say out of the CRC program, Cooperative Research Centre program, you know, we want one in freshwater ecology, let's say, many years ago. And so, but then it goes out there for the community, the, the scientific community, to put together a bid that's compelling enough to get funded. It doesn't get funded because the government says, we want one in that area. It gets funded if it's good enough, as long as it's in that area. And I think that's the right way to do it. Um, we have a, we have a mix. We have, um, uh, some industry R&D. Indeed, if you look at, uh, the statistical data the of the um, amount that is spent in Australia, roughly two-thirds comes from outside the public sector. Um, a lot of that's in-house in industry and, and the business world. That's okay. They've got to do R&D as well because I'm not sure that the public should subsidise in-house R&D for companies that are rich enough to do their own. Um, so so there's a balance always that has to be struck. But But public support for science in Australia is critical for the betterment of science, which in my view means that it's... Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Critical for the betterment of the country and the community that lives in it. And time is quick. Oh, you, well, well, by all means, comment on that, but I have another one for you. When um, research and development and science and technology are one of, because we have still, and Professor, tell me if I'm wrong, but a pretty strong, extensive infrastructure around science and research. We don't have a population, you know, we are, we've got a lot of resources which are digging up as furiously as possible, but they are finite. But you, there's intellectual creativity, be it in arts, but particularly be it in science and technology, is infinite. And Australia's really will set up to support that. So untied, I'm not speaking on behalf of the Labor Party here, but untied thematic government grants, go out and find stuff and see what happens and then bring back the results and let's see what we can do with it. And if you make mistakes, well, maybe radium will come out of it or something like that, and we can use that 40 years down the line. Um, is It's probably not the only way, but it's by far, as experience has shown, the best way. And for you, Thomas, uh, the brave new world of the social media, are you comfortable in it with, social, with uh, scientific communication and so on? Uh, tell us about your experiences in this world. I don't want to sound like an old fogey, but I'm not like social media is. I, I like to go on Twitter to find stuff out, but I don't inject in the conversations because I'm not talking to people. 
So I don't mind reading articles and finding out bits and pieces. And I've got an app on my phone that is the International Space Station. And every so often will give me an alert that its sunrise is coming up. You can go and watch it live. And that's really cool. You can watch a, a, um, the rocket take off. That's not bad to have on your phone from a social media perspective. But I, I don't think that science will be able to make its biggest impact on people through social media. I could be completely wrong. But trying to find ways of presenting findings to people who are vaguely interested, who might be finding stuff out or who see it on Wikipedia or something like that, trying to get that information out in ways that it can be under, understood, I think is absolutely critical. I mean, like Richard Dawkins, you know, he's a, a public, um, he's a public science explainer. Those are uh, the Eddie, no, is it Eddie Wu of uh, the maths teacher? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Absolutely. that sort of thing. And my dad is a science teacher and has spent a lot of time working in that field. And, and he loves talking about ideas in ways that people can relate to. And I spend a lot of my time trying to think of ways of talking about issues that are scientific, but making them relatable. I'm not that good, but like Jeremy Clarkson, he talks about cars, but in ways people can relate. But I, you know, can you talk about climate change as a as a, a, an approaching fire front, perhaps. It's getting bigger and it's getting hotter. And if that's the case, if Tony Abbott in his Davidson Rural Fire Brigade was looking at a fire front, would he go, well, no one else is doing anything, so we're not going to bother? Or would his whole team get stuck in and try and make an impact because every change that you make improves the situation even a little bit and shows the way for other people to follow you? Or oh, I think I read last night is apparently a lot of climate scientists in Melbourne are buying properties in Tasmania. Because it's cool. But speaking as a real old fogey, I don't use it. I, I, okay, I, okay, I, that's all right. I depend on <laughs> I depend on my children and a few friends to tell me. I'm much the same. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm much the same. Ian, I wanted to move the conversation to a more personal note. If that's okay. Um, you were diagnosed recently with cancer, and I understand that you were the subject of a scientific experiment yourself. Um, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your story. Um, well, it was three years ago, roughly, that uh, uh, unexpectedly doing a doing a test for other reasons that um, they saw a, uh, um, a lump on the kidney that hadn't been there six months before. So you go through all the usual tests and they decide uh, that it's uh, renal cell carcinoma and that the... The, uh, I needed surgery. So the initial um, objective was to take out the tumour and spare the kidney, but it, 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 it was not very big, but it had wrapped itself around in a peculiar way, so they had to take out the kidney. So, um, But the pathology was good, and uh, all on my side, you know, as pathologists look at these things. But routinely they send you to an oncologist, and the oncologist said, oh, well, you know, it's, pathology's good, it looks all right. You know, so while you're here... Um, we would do a CT scan and it metastasized to my lungs. So I had four uh, tumors in in the two lungs, and uh, and the and uh, the treatment down here in Canberra was very good, and um, and we talked a bit about it and what the consequences were. And he said to me, "Well, he said you've got." I said, "What's the prognosis?" He said, "You've got three to five months if you don't uh, do any get any treatment." I said, "Well, you know, makes the next question pretty easy. What do I do?" And, Did you uh, use traditional healing methods or uh, no, scientific? I, I, no, I decided I'd options. go to science on this one. Yeah, right. I gave away the olive oil and the potato chips. Wow. And um, they, uh, the uh, people have advised me that I should have used natural healing methods, but but I thought I'd put my hope in science. So he he rang while I was there and asked the um, 
oncologist in Sydney where they had any clinical trials on. And they did and uh, and I went and you do all these tests and then you get sent off to all your data gets sent off and they admit you or not and I was admitted and then they randomise you into a standard treatment arm which was chemotherapy or immunotherapy. I was uh, um, randomised into the immunotherapy arm and I started treatment and it was only then actually just before the treatment started that I began to get symptoms. So the scary thing was the lack of symptoms. And, and you mean uh, that's a new, that's, that's a reasonably new treatment oh, as well, isn't it? Well, it is, yeah. I mean, uh, it, they've been using it for melanoma now for four or five years. Um, and the big question now is why does it work so well in some but not yeah, all? Yeah. And so that's the subject. And, and the treatment that I'm getting. Some people are trying oh, oh, there's a lot now. There's a lot. And um, I, uh, I mean, I saw an article in the New York Times of all places where two photographs of a bloke with a cricket ball sized tumour in his lung treated with some sort of immunotherapy, I don't know what it was, and a few months later there was no tumour left. And uh, I mean, it's it's it, it when it works, it can work clearly very well indeed. So I got randomised in and started the trial. That the symptoms were fluid accumulation in my chest. Mm. I had you know, on two occasions four litres drained out of fluid, and you know, with two and a half the first time, one and a half the second, and it's a bit hard to breathe with that in. And uh, so I was getting a bit sort of. I don't know what I was anxious, I suppose. Anyway, they started the treatment. They said to me, watch your blood pressure and you'll get fatigued. Um, so after the first infusion, I was fatigued for about two days to the point where you didn't want to move. I think the Swannies won that weekend, so it was uh, okay. Was but, the footy um, on? Well, that's yeah, all right. it was okay. Happy days. And, uh, the, um, and then the second one, a couple of days. And I remember my wife and I had gone to the – uh, exhibition in the museum where we looked at uh, it was a thousand uh, uh, the history of civilization in a hundred objects and I got to number 37 and I had to sit down and she went and did the rest on her own but I was sitting there and after that you know for a year and a half nothing and it's been in complete remission for about a year and a half so now I've stopped the treatment I'm now in monitoring phase and and I've spoken about it publicly because, first of all, it's not a social disease. So there's nothing to be ashamed of. It happens to people. And and the second thing is that there's light at the end of the tunnel, that all of this investment in research, all of this investment in people who are doing what they can do to make this better um, is beginning to pay dividends. So you get, I don't know what it is, because I get two antibodies. That's the, the latest theory is that you get better effect with two rather than one. And... Um, and they, uh, um, there are now increasing numbers on the PBS for different cancers. The combo I get isn't yet on the PBS, but but if the impact on me is common across the international trial, there are 1,300 of us who have been in the trial, then you would imagine that they would be seeking to list it on the PBS. And if I can help with that so that there are people out there who have the same issues that I hadn't faced with the same issues... Um, then I'm happy to do it. The the good thing for me, in a way, was that that um, or the, the interesting thing that, and one of the reasons I've gone public is that Peter Doherty at ANU once won a Nobel Prize for identifying how um, our immune system detected uh, virus infected cells, and the virus leaves a little bit of itself on the sea surface and the, uh, cell surface, and the immune cell comes along, sees it, sees it as foreign, and kills it. And um, and this is actually about treating the immune system so that 
the cancers are normally seen as part of cells, so your immune system leaves it alone. So what they've done is block that recognition signal so that the immune system comes along and thinks it's foreign and tries to kill it. And that's the hypothesis. I mean, and the, important, them off. the important thing is, is, have you gone back on social media and finished the hundred years, thousand years of civilization in a hundred objects? Or? <laughs> no, well, I wouldn't know how to go back on the social <laughs> right. media, so I'd, I'd, I'd have to get you to do that for me. Okay. And how, how did you feel as a scientist going through that process? Do you well, think, I think you gave it a higher degree of scrutiny? Oh, well, I suspect they would say I did. I, I produced a weekly log for the first year. And, uh, you know, on day 16, at this, I felt like this. And on day 18, I felt like that. And here is my blood pressure and here are the other things. And, um, and, and I got treated every three weeks for that, um, close to two years, about a year and uh, probably a year and eight, nine months, I guess. And, uh, but I think they tired of it and so did I after a while because there was nothing much happening. I'd go up there, you'd see all these um, people um, getting treatment of some sort in the same room as you and um, talk to the nurses. The nurses would say their professional lives have been changed by recent advances in treatment of cancers, both chemo as well as the immuno that I was getting. And um, and they, uh, I mean, I was sitting there, there were people having their last treatment, uh, walking out of the room saying, well you know, won't see you for however long, you know, much as I liked you, much as I thank you for the treatment you gave me, I hope I don't see you again. I mean, it's a sort of, it it, it, uh, it, it was fascinating being on that side of the uh, of the bench, if I can put it that way, and, um, and seeing that all these people, you know, coping with this issue, but being treated by an extraordinarily professional bunch of people, um, extraordinarily skilled, and extraordinarily empathetic. I mean, you know, you, you, you sort of, in a bizarre way, you sort of, um, you know, I wasn't unhappy going there. And thank you for sharing that story. I, I, I want to take you both back now to some comments earlier about um, uh, the demise of expertise and we don't need experts anymore. But, do, I mean, how do you feel more generally about the future of science in policymaking? Do you feel... Optimistic or more pessimistic? Well, I, um, my my glass is half full because I'm not optimistic about it until the political system changes and and that we move away from the notion that we seem to have adopted that politics is really a sort of self-anointed ruling class and uh, and they don't have to take any notice of anything except getting themselves re-elected. Now, I'm not going to say that's uniformly across, and I know that there are some excellent people there now, and there have been all the time, but but the perception is that too many of them think too much about keeping their job, you know, and it's a job we give them. I mean, it's it's our gift, and so until we get the system working, and it will only do that if we demand it, and I, as I said earlier, I gave a speech last week at the National Press Club where I put up a four-point plan to improve things, which, you know, if uh, it had been dropped into Burley Griffin as a lead balloon, the sea level would have, the surface level would have risen about 20 metres. But um, Do share those four points. Though. Oh, well, one is that they, every incoming politician should take short courses in science and statistics so that they at least know how they work, that they at least know that experiencing a one-in-a-hundred-year event doesn't mean 99 years till the next one. Uh, which I've heard some say, um, that uh, their um, allowances 
over and above salary, but their allowances and everything, should be run through Centrelink. So they have to um, abide by the rules they write for everybody else who gets public allowances and benefits. Uh, question time should be questions from the opposition only, and that the questions should be assessed and evaluated by an ind independent panel that makes their, their, their um, assessment of the responses and the questions themselves um, available publicly, that ministers should have to present their vision for their work in their portfolio and do an annual assessment of achievement against vision and it be publicly documented and that this sounds like more than a four-point plan, but they're all wrapped in together under four points. But um, and that ministers had to answer a fixed number of questions in each each uh, sitting, so that you actually had some sense of what was being done at that level, rather than you know vote Liberal, vote Labor, vote Greens, and you know it doesn't matter much what they do after that because we'll because you know two point depend. So there was a ninety-one percent turnout at the last election. So that means 1.4 million of us registered to vote did not. There were 800,000 in the age range who did not bother to register and there were 400,000 informal votes in a cliffhanger election as it turned out. So you've got 2.5 million odd people who chose not to participate in our democratic system and if you ask them, a fair proportion would say, because I don't think much of it anymore. Words to that effect. Yeah, words to that effect. So, so how do we change it? And until we, until we own it back again and say this is our expectation and this is our expectation of you, the people to whom we give a job. Tell us your thoughts on how we might improve uh, the influence of science within the system. I, I think science is always going to have an influence and as long as science is keep getting produced and discussed, it will, influ uh, it will have influence. Whether or not – I mean because my improvement – is an opponent's uh, appalling influence, right? So, I mean, improvement—it's a—it's a sort of—it's a values term. Um, but science always wins over the long term, right? We have a much better understanding of the solar system than we did in 1500, despite the fact that the church didn't write what Copernicus was saying. Science keeps thinking about it, keeps asking questions, not providing answers, just providing thoughts and possibilities and ideas, and it keeps pushing it forward. I mean, Barack Obama said. The ship, of the ship of state turns really, really slowly and you, you don't know that it's turning when you're on it. But, I mean, look at marriage equality. 30 years ago, when the arguments were being made, no one thinking that we're going to be here and it might have taken longer than it could have, but the ship was turned. Uh, I have no doubt that there'll be a decent and effective climate change response mechanism. I don't know how long that's going to take, but... It will happen, and what causes it? Whether it's consistent pressure, pressure, and a government comes in with people who aren't careerists and don't think that they've got skin in the game in terms of losing their seats and things like that. I mean, Costa Rica—they get rid of their politicians every four years, so they come in, they do four years of work, and then they have to leave. Uh, and so you don't have skin in the game. You're not looking to be there as long as possible. That's, I mean, slightly more radical than your ideas, and maybe that won't get picked up either. But if if governments will come in who are prepared to lose their jobs to chase for something that can be locked in, then there's a possibility that it'll happen sooner rather than later. But it will happen. And Ian, do you share that optimism and science winning out over the long term? Uh, I can be that optimistic. Well, it, ne it never wins. It'll yeah. improve. Like, yeah. Nothing's won. But I, I can share the optimism to the extent that we won't go away. 
um, and there will be things that become so self-evident that something has to be done. The danger with something like climate change is that by the time it's recognised from the political side, it'll be too late to do anything. It almost of is. Real sig- and it's getting close to that now. So so you've got to... Um, but but we will do things. We will... We will I mean, we're... You think of Australian advances in solar energy, for example, um, and, and the capacity to use solar energy. Uh, I saw some staggering statistics somewhere where, you know, 60 or something percent of houses in a particular small town in Australia are now um, uh, got solar panels and they're running what amounts to a microgrid. And and these things will happen, and engineers and scientists are helping. By twenty twenty five. Yeah, I mean you're doing city state. So so things are happening. So I can be cautiously optimistic, but to get the full benefit, you need a political system that is not run by born to rulers, but is run by people who represent the interests of the country and its place in the international community. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, we were talking earlier about. You know, science in the future and so on. One of the things that having good Australian science does gets you a seat at the table internationally where 95% of the world's science is done. So you've got to be there to get benefit from that too. And um, and I know that among some people there's this notion, well, you know, when we need it, we'll buy it in. Well, it's nonsense really. And um, uh, But as participants, we'll get a lot of benefit from being part of it. So, yeah, cautiously optimistic, but to get it used fully, maximally, most usefully, then we need a political system that recognises the value. I'm going to leave us on that uh, point of uh, note of optimism. Uh, Thank you both so much for such an engaging uh, conversation today. Um, I think it's left us with lots more to talk about in future podcasts as well. So thank you both. Pleasure. Thank you. Welcome back. I'm delighted that Ian and Tamus are still with us um, and they're going to join us uh, in our conversation. But Bob, I'm going to turn to you first. You know, what's your big takeaway from that discussion? I think my big takeaway is the confidence I feel in both Ian and Thomas have have their own confidence in science, good science, getting it across, the hard effort to get it through to the politicians. And it was interesting to hear from Thomas from the government and the opposition point of view and how that plays out in practice. I keep thinking back to Ian's mantra of patient, passion and persistence, which I think stands us all in good stead. And also Ian's new thoughts last week about what we need to do in the government system to improve our performance. And behind that, of course, is a plea for strong and effective leadership and for us to take back that process and to make sure it's working well. A bit staggering, those figures of his, are the people who are not actually engaged in the electoral process for a country like ours. What do you think? Yes, I mean, a fascinating discussion, but we've got Ian and Tamus here. Is there any reflections that you have? I'm just sitting here going, well, I, I got asked questions at the same time as Professor Ian Chubb, so that'll be a personal <laughs> highlight for quite a long time. I'm going to be telling my father about it. But to hear how hard, I, I mean, I knew you had to work hard, but you, how hard scientists need to work. He was making some points about who you have to talk to and have to come back and again. And, and I think in my head it was when you see it in an office, a scientist or a, a stakeholder comes up and they makes a point, but you, you actually you do have to come again. And then that takes time out of your studying. And then that takes time out of your research and the points your arguments could otherwise be making. So, yeah, reinforced consistency of effort is really, really important. And I've got one question I'd like to ask you in particular. Relations with China, 
in the scientific field. Now, the ANU has had some significant work to do in that department. Some of our government and agencies departments do too, I think, CSIRO and the rest of them. Significant, big, important country for Australia, a wide set of relationships. Any particular comment on that? I um, So I supported relationships with uh, Chinese academic institutions when I was vice chancellor, when I was chief scientist too. I think uh, to pretend that they're going to be unimportant in the scientific world or so unimportant that you can ignore it would be folly of a high order. Um, the investment in China uh, in areas that will impact on us positively, like climate, like water. You know, I once gave a speech at the Chinese Academy of Science and I was talking about how, you know, notwithstanding our huge population differences and so on, we're one of the few countries in the world that spans so many climate areas, you know, from tropical through to pretty cold, through to uh, arid and dry and deserts and, you know, rainfall patterns shifting around all over the place. And uh, and so I was quite pleased that I, um, I think it's now in chemistry that Australia's most prolific partner in international publication is China. And there are a couple where it's getting close to the top. Now, I know that I mean, I've read the newspapers and I understand paranoia. Um, I understand a lot of the reasons why one needs to be careful. But at the same time, you can't turn your back on such a prolific scientific powerhouse as China is and is determined to be and to be a partner. It's what I said earlier. The quality of our activities gets us a seat at the table with some of the big international players and that's where we should be and that would include the United States and Britain and Europe and China and some other countries in our region that are also emerging. So international engagement, I think science is a, science really ought to be a bit above the politics although you need to be alert to the issues that arise when you do deal with other countries. Thank you both. This is a good opportunity for me just to mention to all of you out there that the Crawford School is introducing a new program at the master's level called Masters of Public Policy policy where you'll get a chance to deal with all of these issues and thinking about some of the disciplines that are involved in that program. Over to you, Sue. Now it's time to hear from some of you. Um, Each week on the pod, we highlight some of the most interesting comments and questions that come our way. And a big thank you to everyone who has shared their thoughts. The first uh, we're going to turn to was about an article called We Need Magic, Not Misery from the Wizards of Oz. And this was by Sharon Bessel. It followed the wake of the leadership spill that saw Malcolm Turnbull ousted as Australia's prime minister. And Sharon argued that Australia's leaders need to show more brains, heart and courage if they are to regain public trust. Um, We had a comment by Jonah. The analysis of what transpired in Australia has been known in Pacific Island countries and New Zealand for years. Perhaps Australian politicians and policy designers should learn the art of egalitarian thoughts and practices from New Zealand, or better still, go to Scandinavian countries like Norway to see how great people uh, live there. What do we what do we think? You know, has Australia got lessons to learn from New Zealand or the Scandinavian countries? Well, I, I think they do, uh, particularly from New Zealand, which I have a little familiarity with. A couple of points to make there. New Zealand is a unitary country, a small country. Australia is a federation, big country, big space, big resources. We have our federal system of government. We've got to make it work. We have two chambers, the upper and lower house. The Kiwis don't have that, but they do have a very attractive, if you like, parliamentary system of multi-member party constituencies, which also 
pretty much ends up in a coalition government often. And when you talk to New Zealand ministers how they make that work, it's kind of fascinating and they do make it work. And I should also mention they do find space for the Maori population in that country. So I think, yes, there are some lessons. What about you? Oh, yes. I mean, I think Australia has historically learnt a lot from New Zealand um, in particular. Um, and we aspire sometimes to be more like Scandinavia. Um, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I like listening to Professor Chubb's ideas about improving standards of responses in Parliament. But I would really like, I'm not sure, I mean, you, you can learn lessons from everywhere and it depends one person's lesson. Once again, it's, it's all relative. And so someone who thinks this is a great lesson to learn, someone else might think that that's terrible and it's not the Australian way. But I would like to start, and I think it's a small, simple thing with a complete rewrite of the Australian constitution. Because my understanding of science is that it's come a long way in 130 years. And I would expect that government policy and constitutional theory has also improved over that journey. And I realise that Gareth Evans tried to do the same sort of thing with the constitutional conventions in the early 80s. I wasn't alive then, so my opinion wasn't asked. But surely a whole redo would be worthwhile, certainly looking at. Ian, you were alive then. Um, they did it what once. Are your we thoughts could do it again. On, on this? Well, I, 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 yeah, I would rewrite the Constitution, and I've got a couple of hours this afternoon, if you like. But um, <laughs> the uh, I'll get you on Twitter. Uh, yeah, that's right. You have to teach me. That'll take a day. The um, so I pick up on the word courage, though. I, I mean, I think uh, it does go back to. Um, in a way, something I said earlier about they're sometimes going to have to tell us things that not all of us like. I mean, one of the striking things about the Australian system, uh, federal system, is that we, you know, nearly every government is 51-49 or, you know, 51 and a half, 48 and a half or something. So approximately half the people, close to half the people, uh, don't agree with the government that's in power. So how do you actually Get what Govern you for want. all Australians. Govern for all Australians. Every speech, every speech we're at, of every, we are here to govern for all Australians, but by the way, we're going to do this, 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 and this. So I, uh, a, a year ago, roughly, I, I had to give a Henry Parks oration speech in Tenderfield, which was um, in the hall where Henry Parks gave his famous speech that kick-started Federation. And uh, there's a big uh, photograph of the table where they were sitting around at that time. And one of the striking things is how many beards and how many beer bottles were, were in the uh, photograph. A prodigious amount of beer must have been drunk. But they came up with – Henry wasn't there by then. He, he left. But, but I, I marvel at how a group of people, him initially and then later a, a bunch of people, actually persuaded a bunch of fractious states – that they should federate in the interests of an Australia. And they did it without cars, without planes. They had trains. Um, no and, social uh, media. No either. social media and no iPhones. Which might have and, and, and they put it to two referenda, one lost and one won. And we have the federation that is, yeah. is a con and a constitution that was a consequence of that time. So, yeah, the constitution is probably – I mean, I'm not a constitutional lawyer and I wouldn't know how to rewrite it. But it's probably not ideal now, just like the American constitution clearly isn't, um, even though it's interpreted very closely by some people. But so, yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd do things like that. But you'd, But what they had was leadership and courage and courage and leadership. And so they – and a narrative. So 
what they said was, these are the reasons why you would do it and this would be the country you would have. And they persuaded that that was worthwhile. And the second referendum was very strongly in favour of federation. The uh, compromises were made. They knew how to compromise, but they didn't lose sight of the goal. Now a compromise is seen as a climb down a weakness, uh, uh, you know, betrayal. Uh, almost. betrayal. Depends on your courage, though. Like, I mean, I guarantee you Cory Bernardi thinks he's the most courageous person in parliament. Yeah, well, And the people well. who voted for him probably agree. I'm going to take us to our uh, second podcast that we're reflecting on, which was putting community engagement in the neighbourhood of good policy, which was an interview with Paul Schmitz, who was one of America's, who is one of America's most influential nonprofit leaders. And he talked about community engagement in policy and how it was absolutely necessary to good policymaking. We had a comment by Brett on Facebook Great. I love you guys. Uh, you nailed it. Too many pointy-headed bureaucrats and educrats sit at 60,000 feet making up things to make lives better, and they don't have a clue. They have never been there or even visited. You know, I think this is a, a, a common criticism, perhaps, of policymakers and politicians for some time, that they're far removed from where the people are at. What do, what do we think about uh, this? And is community engagement, do we think, improving in Australia? I think, taking it from the public service point of view, where I spend a third of my time, I think it has gotten better over a, over a long haul. Having said that, you should never give up on it. It is fundamentally important. And I think the other part to say to it, policy and good policy, I think, can only be really good policy if it's properly in, implemented by policy implementation. In short, policy and its implementation must go together. The implementation of it or the lack of it has to be a strong feedback to policy making. Without that, you might as well be dancing around in circles. So I think it is absolutely fundamentally important. I have a daughter who works in the ATO. They seem to me to be pretty good at getting out there and reaching out there with the people in the community, the small business, the cash economy, whatever. Uh, but it is fundamentally important to keep it going. Thomas? I mean, I think I mean, someone who works the front desk at Centrelink would have more interactions with, quotes, the people than almost anyone in Australia and with, with people's problems and difficulties and struggles. And then that information gets passed up. It doesn't always get acted on or acted on the way that other people think it should be. But everyone's person and they, they work within their own sort of circles. But if you're in the public service, you try and make decisions, but it's based on comeback from the public because you have to talk to them. It's very difficult to make a decision in isolation in the public service because so many people within the actual department get a look at it, let alone getting the information um, to the public emails and on the phone and to the help desks where that comes in. So I, because you disagree with the decision doesn't mean that the work hasn't been done to do it properly. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. I, I, uh, I think... Um uh, so many people that I know and have seen without knowing them in the public service who work so hard to try to get policy right. They, they, will, they don't want any other alternative. Like, no, no one calls, of they, course. They, they don't want it to be bad. Yeah. And, no. uh, and so they, they work and put in an enormous amount of time in many instances to get it right. And um, I don't think they flutter around at 60,000 feet making things up. Uh, I think that, that it's, uh, it's invariably very considered and just like the final election result of 51-49, whatever they do, approximately half the people may not agree with it and then they assume that the work hasn't been done. And they're often and doing what been. they're told and from I, the government. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, this is, this is not, not the way that I've ever seen it. I do think, though, that the big danger is that what we've got to avoid is populist, focus-driven drivel. 
we, we can't make a decision on something until we ask the people what they think, but they can't ask the people outside an election, so they do a focus group and pick a few people. What do you think of this? Oh, that's okay. Well, you know, and it gets in. The other thing, of course, that I don't like is this notion of mandate. I mean, anything that is uttered during an election campaign is apparently part of a mandate on a 51-49 split of the vote. And um, and there were things that get mentioned that you never knew were mentioned until they become part of some action later on, and uh, and I don't like that. I think I think that you know we saw the APVMA moved from uh, Canberra to Armidale off the back of what was allegedly a mandate where one individual apparently in one electorate said we're going to move them, and because it was during the election campaign they got moved, so people's lives are turned on their heads because a person whose capacity for judgment is not uh, uh, admired, uh, widely admired. So you get all of these things happening. So it's very complex, very complicated. But I, I, don't, think, I don't think his perception, um, Brett's perception is correct. But I do understand why people have that perception. So very quickly, I don't mind what they do in England. Um, where they, the parties publish a manifesto 40, 40 days or something before the election and it's all the major policies and how we're going to implement, how we plan to implement. And then that manifesto is respected mostly by the party that loses the election and they're given the latitude to the, – the, the victorious party says we've got a mandate because everyone got a chance to look at it and this is what we're going to do and it's let through. That's not – has to be respected. That's not a bad idea, certainly. It's a better idea than ours. Would require we, courage. Yeah, yeah. Well, courage is important, but but it's better than ours where they actually have the launch a week before yeah. the actual election, so yeah. we for, pay for it for, for the first reasons, three weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to turn now to an article by David Brewster, which was entitled Putting the Indo in Indo-Pacific. Uh, David took a look at how the Indian Ocean fits into Australia's Indo-Pacific strategy. And we had a comment by Pangaj. The important point is the Indo-Pacific does not have institutional support, as has been the case with regard to Southeast Asia, the Indian Ocean and the Asia-Pacific. All these constructs were supported by institutions such as ASEAN, uh, the Indian Ocean Rim Association and APEC. The issue is whether geographic definition should be uniform or each country chooses its own definition. Bob, what do you think about this? Look, I think um, this is a recent concept, Indo-Pacific, and Pankaj does make a good point, uh, which is at its conceptual level, uh, it's kind of useful now to think about the Indo-Pacific. As a former diplomat, I'm an old Asia-Pacific man, so it's taken me a while to get my brain around Don't you have that. To say Asia-Pacific hand, I'm an old Asian. <laughs> <laughs> old Lou. <laughs> but if you put yourself in the Northern Hemisphere and say you're imagining you're in Tokyo or Beijing or Seoul, looking at the world and the geography, there's a kind of logic to the connectivity between the Pacific and the Indian Ocean. And the way our strategic environment is changing, it makes it that much more relevant. So you think of China's Belt and Road Initiative and the way that spans the whole thing, South China Sea and all of those issues. So that's it, it is, So I think the Indo-Pacific as a concept, it's time has sort of come and it's kind of useful to think of it that way. Some of the American documentation under the Trump administration now refers to it in its formal language, which is interesting to note. And should but, it have its own institutional support? Well, see, that's the thing. I think that, is only, th- that will have to grow through usage because I go back to my old mode of being a sort of uh, diplomat and we all diplomats want to do things and we need to sort of operationalize this thing, this Indo-Pacific. 
and we've got a lot of institutions in the Asia-Pacific and beyond region. So I think if there is to be an institution, it's going to have to hurry slowly and to find its natural place to do something useful along with all the others. what does it want to do? And what does it want to do and how does it fit in? Ian, any thoughts on this? I just want to prove to you that I don't have an opinion on everything. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll leave it to Bob. I'm going to join. Thanks again to all of you who left us comments and please do keep sending them in. Thanks to Ian and thanks to Timus for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds. Just find that fifth star. It'll be a big help to us in getting word out about this pod. Uh, We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod where we're taking a look at populism around the world from Denmark to Delhi. And on Monday, don't forget to look out for the next installment of our sister podcast, The Brief, where Edwina Landale will take a look at natural disaster response and resilience. But until then, from me, Sue, cheerio. And also from me. Thank you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.